I'm so glad that we are all together today on this beautiful morning outside at the Fisher Farm so that we can continue to worship Jesus and do that by concluding our study of John chapter 6. And so as we come to the end of this chapter, one of the things that we need to do is we need to acknowledge that this has been a very challenging one in many ways for us to look at together. This chapter starts with one of the most incredible miracles in this gospel, and indeed is one of the only miracles that's recorded in all four gospels, leads into some of Jesus's most difficult teaching as he intentionally confronts the, the Jewish leaders and teachers who, who disagreed with him and were hostile towards him, and also challenge those who were following him. And so as we explore the fallout of this confrontation that we've looked at over the last several weeks, as we explore this fallout, we're going to once again see a truth that we've explored a number of times in our study of the Gospel of John so far. And that is that Jesus knows our hearts better than we do because he knows who are his. And so today, as we go through these last 11 verses of chapter 6, here's how we're going to see this play out as we bring the chapter to a, cl- a close. First, that Jesus confronts the self-righteous and outwardly religious. That Jesus' confrontation separates disciples from disciples. And finally, that Jesus encourages his disciples to hold fast to their confession. So, let's pray together and then let's dig into this. Father, thank you for, for this opportunity to come together and worship you together that because of Jesus, we have a reason to do this. And that we have a beautiful day to enjoy as we do. I pray that you would speak clearly to our hearts in this time together through your spirit and through your word as we seek to make much of Jesus now in this moment and in the days ahead. In his name we pray. Amen. So, starting right at verse 61. We're just going to, we are, sorry, 60 rather. Just as a reminder, uh, this is, all of this is happening when Jesus has been teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. And so, after, after we learn this in 59, it says, Then many of his disciples, when they heard these things, said, This is a difficult saying. Who can understand it? And so everything that Jesus had taught in the preceding 40 verses wasn't difficult in the sense of strictly being hard to understand. Although certainly, as we've seen, some of it has been pretty hard for us to understand. I mean, when Jesus is saying that only those who eat his flesh and drink his blood will have eternal life, I mean, let's be honest. That's hard to understand in many respects. And so right off the bat, as with only getting a verse in here, we need to admit that it's okay for us to admit that we don't understand something in Scripture. The reality of being a follower of Jesus means that we are students. 
we are always learning. We are always growing. And as students, that means that we are going to have knowledge gaps. And this is part of the reason why, although certainly not the sole reason, that we teach through books of the whole, the whole books of the Bible sequentially in our worship gatherings. It's also why we're starting these uh, summer seminars to explore larger theological topics together. It's why we encourage reading good books and on and on and on, we, the, all the different things that we do. But a lack of understanding is not strictly what John had in mind when he recorded this statement from these disciples. The language that John used suggests that those who complained weren't saying that Jesus' teaching in the preceding 40-odd verses were hard to understand. It's that they were offended by Jesus' direct confrontation of their self-righteousness and outward religiosity. And so in this, Jesus was being the good shepherd that we know him to be. And as the one who knows what's in the hearts of all people, he was speaking directly to their hearts. And as he did, what he said was poking four proverbial bears. So what were those? What were those things that he poked at that made them so offended? Well, in We've looked at those over the last couple of weeks, but just as a quick recap, something that New Testament theologian D.A. Carson does a great job of is summarizing these for us. And here's the paraphrase of how he puts it. First, that Jesus said that they were more interested in food, in political saviors, and manipulative miracles than in the spiritual realities that Jesus' teaching and miracle of feeding the great multitude pointed to. Second, that Jesus had said that they were incapable of taking the first steps of genuine faith because they were unprepared and unwilling to relinquish their self-autonomy. Third, that Jesus said that as the son of God, that he was greater than Moses, uniquely sent by God the Father because he was and is God in the flesh. And fourth, that Jesus' extended bread metaphor was challenging clear cultural and religious taboos as he pointed to faith in him um, as... um, as the greater truth to which the the law of Moses points to. He was running into a perceived conflict with the law of Moses by making eternal life a matter of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And these problems that they experienced, these are still problems that, that people today experience as well. I mean, As human beings, we are all prone to these sorts of things. Maybe not in the exact specifics, but in in general, we are all prone to pursue self-made religion and to seek justification through our own perception of righteousness. We look to political power figures for a sort of salvation and to a God who will be a kind of vending machine giving us whatever we want as long as we press the right buttons. But what we constantly find is that none of that actually works. It never does. And so we're always disappointed by it because none of it ultimately deals with our deepest needs, our deepest problems, and our deepest 
hopes. It just leaves us spinning around in a cycle of angst-ridden religious activity. And when that doesn't work or when we're confronted with the actual cost of following Jesus, we're left with a choice. Do we keep following or do we walk away? That's because that's what Jesus wants people to deal with here. His confrontation has offended their sense of self-righteousness, of their outward religious behavior, their appearance of faith. But he's not doing this to be offensive. He's not, he's not, he's not doing this just to shock and, and, and upset people. He's saying these things because he wants them to understand the cost of following him. And so he says, basically, as we're going to see in verse 61 and following, if you're offended by what I've just said, if that causes you to stumble, then what are you going to do when you see what I've actually come to do? And this is where he goes in verse 61. Now listen to this. When Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining about this, he said to them, does this cause you to be offended? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending when, where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. Human nature is of no help. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. And so Jesus continues to confront these disciples, and he does so by narrowing in on this deeper issue. And that is that his confrontation reveals that there are disciples, and then there are disciples. Okay, so remember, a disciple in the broadest sense is a student, a follower of a teacher or a philosopher. And over his ministry so far, um, as Jesus has gone about teaching and performing signs and wonders. Many people started to follow him. Many people said that they were his disciples. And that's certainly true. They were, at least to some extent. But that doesn't mean that they, were, they truly understood who it was that they were following or why they were following him. You see, some people saw Jesus as a powerful teacher, someone who was standing up to the religious authorities of the time. Others saw him as this great and mighty prophet, perhaps even the one that Moses spoke of as one who was coming who would be greater than him. But what would they do when they see him ascending to where he was before? That is, to see him lifted up on the cross, to see the Messiah, the Christ, God's promised Redeemer, endure a shameful death so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. To see the scandal, the offense of the gospel in full view. The offense that has not changed from the moment Jesus came into the world to today. This, the gospel is offensive to our sensibilities because we are hardwired to pursue self-righteousness. We are bent toward trying to justify ourselves and put our virtuousness on display for all people to see, to signal to the world, hey, come see how good I am. Even 
those of us who claim to follow Jesus. We all do this. But those of us who have been given life by the Spirit, those who are being drawn by the Father to Jesus, who are born from above, born from again, regenerated into new life, all of these different ways that we've seen through the gospel so far that this has been, that new life with Christ has been described. They will embrace the offense of the gospel. They will see that Jesus' words truly are spirit and life, that they are good news. They are the bread that we are invited to eat and drink. And, we, and as we do, they fill our hearts with joy and happiness because we belong to God, as Jeremiah 15, 16 says. But for those Jesus says don't believe, the ones whom he said are not given to him, the offense of the gospel is too great. It challenges them in such, uh, to such a degree that they cannot abide its message. And so they walk away and follow him no longer. And that's what we see in verse 66. But Jesus' confrontation doesn't stop there. His wanting his, the disciples who were with him to understand the separation that exists between those who call themselves disciples and those who truly are. And this is what we see in verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the, Son, the Holy One of God. And Jesus replied, Didn't I choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? Now he said this about Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for Judas, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And so Jesus, in verse 67, asks the twelve a rhetorical question, one of which the obvious answer is meant to be no. This is the 12 after all, the inner circle, the follower of the followers, the, 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 in, the, 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 the chief ones that are with him. But even though the question doesn't require an answer, Peter, being Peter, he offers one. He says, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, listen. This answer is beautiful. This is the right answer in terms of the words that he's saying. And as such, they are far more beautiful than Peter actually understood. Because Peter, being Peter... When he's answering this, he's got a bit of a swagger going on when, he, when he's saying this. He doesn't declare Jesus to be the Holy One of God simply because he has a clearer picture of who Jesus actually is. Although perhaps he and the rest of the Twelve were in fact coming to a greater understanding of Jesus as the Messiah and what that meant. After all, they were with him more than anybody else. And yet, even so, his understanding was still very, very murky. 
it was certainly not clear enough to suggest that he and the others were a cut above the rest. That as he would later confidently assert in uh, elsewhere that even if all others fall away that he never would. Which of course we know he did shortly after, shortly before denying that he knew Jesus to a servant girl multiple times. So his swagger didn't really pay out for him. But Jesus, in that way that he does over and over again, says to Peter in that way that we might, uh, we might to an overly confident teenager, Peter, buddy, I love you. But you don't know what you're talking about. Didn't I choose you, the twelve, he says, and yet one of you is the devil. Jesus' confrontation of these disciples and of the twelve reminds us that Jesus knows who are his, and he knows who belongs to him better than we ourselves do. And that there are some who might say that they are disciples, but they are following Jesus for the wrong reasons. Because of what they can get from, uh, from him, as so many did in the moments leading up to this confrontation. And so many would after as well. And there are others who seem to follow, but they do so under false pretense. Men like Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, one of those chosen by Jesus, a man who walked closely with him. He was the one who would not just abandon Jesus as so many others would, but he would actively, intentionally betray him. Well did he and others like him deserve the title that Jesus gave him, the devil. And this means a few things for us. First, that because there are people who say they're, uh, there are dis- that they are disciples, uh, but they, uh, sorry, there are people who say that they are disciples, but they are not truly disciples in the sense that Jesus talks about. And because that's the case, we should not be surprised by people falling away. Now, it is tragic when we see this happen. I've been a Christian for 18 years now, which compared to, I'm going to guess a lot of you out here in the, in the field today, is not really that much time. Except for, you know, the teenagers who, you know, you guys are younger and that's fine. But even in that time, I've seen this happen with people that professed faith, people that I knew and loved and cared about only to see that when the cost of following Jesus became too great or when their faith stopped working in the way that they expected, they gave up. They walked away. Now, some did it overtly in the sense that they openly renounced Jesus, but others did it much more subtly, gradually just drifting away from their faith altogether. And when, when it happens, every time that it happens, even in the times when you can see that it's going to happen, it's heartbreaking. It's a tragic thing to see. Now, second, we should also not be surprised when someone who powerfully proclaims the gospel is revealed to be a devil. Again, 
Should we be heartbroken by this? Yes, without question. Should we be angry and frustrated by this? Oh yeah. But should we be surprised? I don't think so. John's gospel prepares us for this, as do Matthew's, Mark's, and Luke's. Paul prepares us for this as well in his epistle. And John points us back to this again in his epistles, where he says that there were some who went out from us, but were not of us. So we shouldn't be surprised when this happens, even as we are grieved when it does. Third, because we know this, it means that it isn't our job to to declare who is in and who is out when it comes to who is a genuine follower of Jesus. Jesus knows who are his, we do not. And while there is a place for cautioning against false teachers and speaking up about error, we need not become self-appointed heresy hunters and gatekeepers of the kingdom of God. And uh, just to be honest, that is is one of those things that... um, particularly when you're younger in the faith, when you are, um, you know, maybe discovering some theological convictions, that's a place where you can get into trouble real fast. Because, um, you know, most people as they're developing their convictions probably need to be put in a cage for about five years. At least I did. At least I did. I used to wield what we called my mighty theological hammer of justice. And I wielded it well and smashed everything with impunity because I was an idiot. But all that to say that that heresy hunting and gatekeeping, chances are not our spiritual gift. And if we think it actually is, I got a newsflash for you, Walter Cronkite. It isn't. So we need not let our awareness of the reality that not all who say they follow Jesus are actually followers of Jesus turn us into cynics. Instead, this knowledge should humble us. It should encourage us to pray earnestly for ourselves, for one another, and for the world, all the more trusting, that, trusting Jesus to do what only he can do in the lives of lost people and in the lives of those who are his, to bring conviction of sin and new life to those who belong to him and to, as we declare the good news of Jesus together in our words and in how we live with one another. And fourth, this truth means that we should have hope Because Jesus knows who are his, that means he knows who are his. And so that should, that gives us ground for tremendous, unshakable hope. Because if we have believed the gospel, if Jesus' words are spirit and life to us, we have all the hope in the world. We have all the confidence in the world because Jesus does not lose any that are given to him. Those he saves will see the resurrection and enter into his rest on the last day and enjoy life and peace and fellowship with him forevermore. So there are disciples and there are disciples. So how else should we respond to this aspect of Jesus's confrontation well, as we close our time together, or this, of this aspect of our worship together, let's answer that question as we once again look at Peter's confession in verses 68 and 69. 
And here he says, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so as, as we already discussed, Peter made, though Peter made this confession, not truly understanding what he was saying, and indeed not even with, with entirely correct motives, let's embrace the beauty of it. Because it is good news. Because this confession is meant to be ours. And Jesus encourages us to hold to this confession. But let's be honest. Holding to this, holding fast to it is not going to be easy. Following Jesus is costly. And it costs us because following Jesus puts us at odds with the world because Jesus' teaching still confronts the world the way that it always has. And people are still offended by it. And you can think of all kinds of different examples. There are so many that we would be here for hours listing them all. But the truth is Jesus' teaching is true. What Jesus says about all of us is true. And no matter where we are, no matter what time we live in, people are going to be offended by the truth that he proclaims. But it's not just with the world where, where, where there's going to be cost because sometimes following Jesus will put us at odds with other Christians as we seek to live faithfully with, uh, in light of the gospel and the scripture's teaching. And so this has a few different ways that it plays out, but a lot of the time these things can be worked out together as we seek to understand and grow in our knowledge of the gospel together. And so it puts us at odds with the world. It puts us at odds with one another at times. And it also puts us at odds with ourselves. Because Jesus is continually challenging us as we seek to be more like him. As we open up his word. As we read the scriptures and pray and engage and experience life in community together. He is peeling and pulling away everything that clings to us. And holds us back from being who we are in Christ. And it is hard. It hurts. And in all of it, we'll have times when we will be tempted to give up, to walk away because that pain might feel too great. But we want to hold fast to our confession, to take these words that Peter spoke with swagger and earnestly hold them in our hearts. Because as Jesus said in, verse, in, in John 16, verse 33, in the world you will have trouble and you will have suffering, but take courage, I have conquered the world. This is the one in whom all our hope lies. Not in any kind of self-assurance or self-righteousness, not in any kind of outward religious performance, in the one who has overcome the world by his death and resurrection. The one who knows our hearts better than we do. The one who knows who are his. So take heart, friends, and hold fast to your confession to the very end. Because there is a reward waiting, and you will receive it when you are raised 
on the last day. So let's pray together. Father, thank you that Jesus is the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. Thank you that he is the one who holds us all together. And that he holds us in his hand and that he will never let go of those who are his. And God, I pray that for all of us here who know this truth, who believe this truth, who cling to this truth, that we would find so much hope in that. And that for those who are here who are unsure, who are struggling, who are questioning this reality, that you will continue to draw and pull them in to confront them where they need to be confronted, to help them to see the beauty of the gospel for what it is, to set aside the offense and see that, his, that Jesus' words are spirit and life for us all and to enjoy them with gladness and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.